You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. New Scientist Weekly is brought to you in partnership with the Financial Times. The FT brings you the stories that matter, not only in the world of business and finance, but also covering stories in science, technology, climate change and more. Check it out at ft.com. Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly, the podcast that gives you your essential science hit. I'm Penny Sarche, news editor at New Scientist. And I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. Joining us in the pod today are new scientist journalists Graham Lawton and Donna Liu. Graham is a staff writer and columnist, and Donna is a reporter on the news desk. Hello. Hello. Hi there. On this week's show, we've got a story about our ancient relatives, the finding that Neanderthals buried their dead. And we've also got a story from the near future, the announcement that SpaceX will be selling tickets for tourists to travel into space. But first, we're looking at a real game changer for humanity that is finally arriving in 2020, lab-grown meat. Graham, you've written about it for the magazine this week. What's happening? I haven't. Lab-grown meat is something we've heard a lot about over the years. It's been around for 25 years or so. It's always been one of those technologies that people have thought of as five or ten years away. Uh, Well, you know, not anymore. Um, Some of the big problems have been cracked uh, and it's almost ready now. You might say oven ready. Um, (laughs) um, But not maybe in the way that people expect because people tend to associate lab-grown meat with burgers, maybe because the first lab-grown meat that was demonstrated was a burger. But we're saying that it's almost certainly going to be seafood that we Mm. get first. So why is that? Well, seafood is actually a lot easier to grow than, say, beef or chicken uh, because it's only muscle. There's no connective tissue, there's no fat, there's no real structure to seafood, especially if you make mince meat and uh, shrimp mince is a really big ingredient in Southeast Asia and that's where this, where the action is really taking place right now. Uh, there's a company in Singapore called Shiok Meats, which is really interesting. They specialise in making shrimp. Um, and Shiok means tasty or delicious in Singapore slang. And the, the founder, Sandy Siram, told me that they will file a novel food application for their shrimp this year. So that means that we could see the first cultured meat products on the market in 2020. So they can do it at big enough scale to, to bring it out to market? Scale is a really big problem still. Um, nobody's really scaled up production yet, but m- many companies are ready, I'm told, to uh, roll out products uh, in restaurants. So they're going to go down the same road as, say, Impossible Burger, where they first of all launch in kind of swanky, trendy restaurants to get a bit of a buzz going. Um, scaling is possible. There is a company in the US called Blue Nalu, which is also another seafood company, which announced uh, last year plans to build a massive production facility that could, I think they said, could make enough uh, tuna to feed a million people. And, and this is why it's going to be a game changer. I mean, I said it was going to be a game changer, but I was being dramatic about that. But it, it, if we can scale it up, that's why. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why, because conventional meat production and, and aquaculture as well are just not sustainable, given the growth in demand for meat around the world. It's, tra- it's doubled in the past 30 years and will double again in the next 30, and it's just impossible to produce that amount of meat without crashing the climate and trashing the environment. But, of course, uh, growing it in a lab is a completely different proposition. Um, you, you basically uh, strip out all of the environmental impacts. I mean, that's slightly controversial, but it certainly won't be as damaging as beef production. But there are all sorts of other reasons why it's a game changer uh, obviously there's animal welfare issues no animals get hurt in the production apart from a few biopsies that are required to extract the stem cells from which the meat is grown uh, it actually, it's actually healthier than meat for you um, there's food security issues so a lot of countries are now thinking about 10 billion people on the planet how on earth they're going to grow enough meat grow enough food uh, Singapore in particular because it has almost no agriculture and imports 90% of its food uh, but there's another real major game changer here which people don't talk about quite so much which is antibiotic resistance and that is driven largely by livestock agriculture something like 80% of antibiotics in the world are used in agriculture to give to cows and sheep and chickens to a stop them from getting ill when they're raised together in intensive farming and also because they're growth promoters and they're not really supposed to be used as growth promoters but they work really well as that so one of the major things that you uh, don't have to worry about with cultured meat is antibiotics. You simply don't need to use them. So what does it take to actually grow some shrimp meat in the lab? It's actually quite straightforward and the technology hasn't really changed from the burger that was demonstrated uh, f- a few years ago. You essentially get some stem cells, muscle stem cells. You might also need fat and connective tissue stem cells. You need a, a support medium of some kind, so a bioreactor or a scaffold. Uh, you need a culture medium which contains growth factors and hormones. You put it all together and then the cells do what comes naturally and they just kind of grow into meat. Uh, they spontaneously organise themselves into muscle tissue. And do you like grow a massive chunk of it? Does it keep going on forever? You know? <laughs> a bit like, the, the, like the, what it was in chicken licking that kind of <laughs> grows out of the pot. Um, that is a question that uh, is still to be answered. I mean, people talk, there's obviously lots of kind of tedious discussion about whether you do it in batch culture or continuous culture. People are still working on that stuff. But essentially, so if Shiok meats who make the shrimp, for example, get it right, what they'll do is batch cultures of shrimp. They'll grow lots and lots of shrimp muscle cells in a liquid culture, extract it, and then essentially you've got minced shrimp, which, as I, said, as I said, is used in a lot of Southeast Asian dishes anyway, and would just be a straightforward substitute for that shrimp, which currently is grown in pretty disgusting conditions in aquaculture ponds in Southeast Asia, which requires you to rip out mangrove swamps and salt marshes and all those kinds of things. It's easy, as you mentioned, to grow shrimp because they're all muscle. But what happens, say, for, for beef or pork where there's fat involved? What do people do there? Well, you start with some fat stem cells as well, so you get the fat incorporated into it. Um, and yes, but you're right, it's more difficult. And certainly growing a steak is going to be really quite tough. You'd need a really good scaffold there that will form a kind of support structure for the steak to grow around. But people are still talking about starting off with things like minced meat and chicken nuggets and those kind of processed meats that people will yeah, people will eat them anyway. So you could probably grow a burger. Uh, that's probably still four or five years away. Uh, and full-scale steaks are probably still... 10 years away but if the shrimp works then that kind of paves the way for that kind of progress it's a no-brainer really isn't it if they get it right i mean what what reasons are there not to do it what does it taste like 
Well, I, I haven't personally tasted any, which is a shame, but there aren't any UK companies that have produced a prototype yet, although there is one in Bristol called Higher Stakes, which is working on bacon, and I can't wait to try <laughs> that when it comes out. I stopped eating meat quite a long time ago. Um, but I did speak to someone called Liz Specht, who's the chief scientist at the Good Food Institute in the US. Now, she's tried two prototypes. She tried duck breast, which is made by Memphis Meats, which is one of the leading companies, and some salmon by another company called Wild Type. And she described it to me as pretty authentic. Uh, I mean, she does eat meat in her daily life uh, she said they were pretty much indistinguishable from the real thing i mean they are the real thing arguably because they're grown from the stem cells of the animal uh, but she did point out they were prepared at a tasting by professional chefs which might be quite difficult to replicate at home but from what i understand if you're not too fussy about the meat that you eat you're going to be eating burgers and sausages then this stuff is just as good as that and down the road you really will be able to get steaks so there is one downside, and that's it, it can be too clean, right? Yeah. So, I mean, people t- refer to it as clean meat, and it is very clean. It comes out of the bioreactor almost completely without any microbes on it. But microbiologists worry that that makes it a sitting duck for um, food poisoning bacteria because meat that comes from an abattoir already has a microbiome, which tends to uh, competitively exclude bacteria like salmonella and listeria that are going to give you food poisoning but some people worry that with cultured meat you may open a packet leave it on the side for 10 minutes and then it will just attract food poisoning bacteria that are in the atmosphere so it may be necessary to inoculate the meat with a kind of benign microbiome but that's another one of the technology hurdles that hasn't quite been overcome yet and aside from that you mentioned that it, it's lab-grown meat is healthier uh, why is that does it have less fat or? yeah you can control the composition a bit so you can make sure that you get the really good amino acids less fat uh, less of and also because a lot of uh, conventionally produced meat is full of antibiotics and growth promoters you don't need any of that stuff so it should be healthier mm. because this meat is produced in a lab are there going to be hurdles before before it makes its way to supermarkets or you know onto our dinner plates essentially? yeah I mean lab grown meat is a little bit of a misnomer because it's it's being developed in labs um, but will eventually be produced in factories and big sort of fermentation factories in the same way that say cheese is produced now Um, as I said scaling up is still a bit of a problem um, but that you know that that should be doable with kind of existing knowledge about industrial processes because most foods that are new foods that are developed are developed in labs initially with small scale prototype products and then scaled up so the food companies know how to do this just that no one's demonstrated it yet with lab-grown meat. Now, a quick update on the coronavirus situation. Cases are now getting on for 76,000 today on the 20th of February, and deaths are just over 2,000. Still, the vast majority of those cases are in China. So as we mentioned last week, there was one day last week where the case numbers just massively shot up by 15,000, which was quite alarming. Um, We now uh, have a clearer picture that that was this kind of redefining of unconfirmed cases. um, And that was sort of a one off. So there haven't been loads of those every day. And, And the good news seems to be that there is a general trend that's been going on since the start of the month now in that the number of cases except for that one day are, are actually going down every day. So so fingers crossed there. And increasingly, as people are looking at the data and also what happens when uh, the odd case crops up abroad, it's now uh, starting to look like it m- might be a case of um, most of the infections are caused by super spreaders. So this is this idea where, for example... Uh, 80% of the cases are actually spread by only 20% of the people who have it. And so 
just to be clear, super spreaders are people who, for some reason, pass it on to more people than the average. Not on purpose. It's completely unwittingly. It's probably something to do with their biology. Um, and whilst it sounds really bad, this actually might be good news. Because um, if it was the case where everyone who was infect- uh, who had the infection could then go on and infect a few people, that would be really hard to trace as it spread around the world. But with super spreaders, as long as you can spot the odd super spreader as they crop up, as we seem to have had one in the UK a few weeks ago, um, if you can find that person, quarantine them and all of their contacts, we might just be able to stop this virus from going pandemic. So we're still waiting to see if that's the case. Uh, but that's what everyone's talking about this week. A super spread is unique to coronavirus or does it happen with um, other infectious diseases as well? I think it's um, uh, one of these epidemiological, uh, you know, it's one of these things that can be a feature of all kinds of outbreaks. Um, but we certainly did get it in the SARS outbreak, which was a coronavirus as well. And and it is thought that because that was mostly super spread, that was one of the reasons that we could get that outbreak under control. And now it's time for Climate Hope or Doom. We pick a story from this week's news and look at what it means for the climate crisis. Donna. This week's news is that the founder of Amazon and the richest person in the world, Jeff Bezos, has committed 10 billion US dollars, so that's about 7.7 billion pounds, to fighting climate change. It isn't just a pledge to give cash to a charity. Bezos has announced on Instagram, of all places, that he's starting a green investment initiative called the Bezos Earth Fund, which will, from this summer onwards, start issuing grants to fund scientists, activists and NGOs, he says. Uh, He's had some stick in the past, hasn't he, for not being charitable enough? Yeah, he's been criticised for his comparative lack of philanthropy um, when when put against the likes of you know Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Uh, Although this pledge is one of the biggest donations this century, uh, the third largest, I believe. The announcement isn't without controversy. Ten billion is obviously a lot of money, but it works out to be just under eight percent of Jeff Bezos's personal net worth which is an estimated $125 billion, give or take a few billion. Some people are questioning whether philanthropy is the best way for Bezos to make an impact, given that Amazon as a company has a massive carbon footprint. Uh, so in 2018, Amazon emitted more than 44 million metric tonnes of carbon, which is comparable to the annual emissions of a small Scandinavian country, so you know Denmark or Norway. And that's largely to do with its shipping of products all across the world, uh, but also the computing power it provides to other companies um, as part of Amazon Web Services. I wonder if you could achieve more by pledging to go net zero. That seems to be a thing that a lot of companies are doing, and there's peer pressure building up amongst companies to pledge to go net zero by 2030 or 2045 or whatever. But as you say, the delivery trucks are a big problem for Amazon. I wonder whether the drones, de- drone delivery will sort that out for them. So Amazon has um, pledged to cut carbon emissions. Uh, They've got a goal of net zero by 2040, and they also want to be using 100% renewables by 2030. Uh, It also wants to make 50% of shipments net zero by 2030, which seems like a good thing, but when you think about it, it doesn't seem to actually mean anything. You know, if the other half of the shipments are generating lots of carbon emissions, it's unclear what that goal actually means. Uh, The key question now, though, I guess, for the Bezos Earth Fund is how the money should be best spent. So different climate scientists have suggested uh, political lobbying to get climate policies enacted or investing more into renewables and green transport. 
Other people have suggested helping poorer countries develop without having to rely on fossil fuels, as a lot of our developed economies have done. Uh, while others have suggested protecting forests and rewilding, so this idea of、um, Amazon for the Amazon, so to speak. Okay, time out. Another word from our sponsors, the Financial Times. The FT identifies the stories that matter, like whether a green society can keep consuming, and looking at which technological trends will shape the decade. What does your workplace look like? Open plan, hanging plants, desk sharing everywhere you look. It's becoming more common to have a collaborative space, but is that actually a good thing? A fascinating article in the FT says not. In the dark side of hip office spaces, they highlight how tightly packed, noisy workspaces full of little distractions are impacting upon happiness and productivity. And then there's an article titled "First Sushi, Now Manga: Will AI Ruin Great Japanese Inventions?" Much to the author's horror. Despite recoiling at sushi designed by AI in 2018, the tech is now taking on another staple of Japanese culture. This month, it'll attempt to recreate the art style and storytelling of the late father of Japanese animation, Osamu Tezuka. Will it be another horror show? Keep up to date with the FT to find out. The Financial Times is your trusted guide to the new normal. Join the debate at ft.com. Next up, a new fifty-thousand-year-old Neanderthal skeleton that has been found in northern Iraq. And what's really interesting about this find is that it seems to confirm that the Neanderthals deliberately buried their dead. Yeah, so I thought we already knew this. So there was some previous evidence that this was the case,、um, and it comes from the same、uh, site. This is Shanida Cave,、um, which was first excavated back in the fifties and the sixties. And one of the most famous finds there was,、um, I think they found ten specimens of Neanderthals, but one of them seemed to be buried with little clumps of pollen nearby, and that suggested that it may have been、um, buried with like a floral tribute, and all that's left were, were the pollen as remains of the flowers.、Um, so that kind of kicked off this idea that Neanderthals. Neanderthals might have sort of ceremonially looked after and buried their dead, but that was actually a really controversial suggestion, and no one could really agree. But now they've got some more evidence. Yeah, so I mean, there were a few ideas that maybe could have explained how pollen ends up、um, in a grave, and and so that, or accidental or intended grave. They thought maybe rodents might have been burying、uh, flowers or eating them there, or that perhaps even the people who excavated it might have carried some flowers around and and got pollen there. So this new finding doesn't actually get to the bottom of the flower thing,、um, but what it is is、uh, much more conclusive evidence that Neanderthals really seem to have been. Buried. So this new find, it, it's actually only half a skeleton,、uh, possibly because the site was disrupted in previous excavations. And there's a few signs that seem really key. So one is that、um, the bones themselves seem to be in a sediment layer that's darker than the layer below it. So that's kind of consistent with this idea that you're filling in dirt over a body. And also, when they had a look at the sediment layer below it,、um, there's signs of it having been compressed. And that、uh, that's kind of what you'd expect if you'd been digging out a hole deliberately. You'd kind Of get that flattening,、um, so this looks like it's proper evidence that、uh, Neanderthals really did have a culture where they had ritual burial of their dead to some extent. Yeah, and、um, the more we know about Neanderthals over the years, the more we should accept this sort of finding. Yeah,、right? yeah, exactly. And so the the question here is,、um, we know that humans. Uh, modern humans, Homo sapiens、uh, ourselves,、um, have been burying their dead probably for about a hundred thousand years, and so Neanderthals and and our species were both around at this time. We don't know if、uh, one type of human learned it from another human, or whether、um, this kind of cultural practice is just innately a part of being a human, regardless of whether you're us or Neanderthals.
So 50,000 years ago, that's right at the end of the Neanderthal era. They, they went extinct, what, 40,000 years ago yeah, or so? Yeah, something like that. So is it possibly a kind of very late cultural flowering of Neanderthal behaviour at the very end of their existence? Potentially. I, I guess it's until we have more specimens, we don't know. This is all just based on one cave. So I guess the, the big question now is can we go out and find other examples and uh, date them back? There must also have been our species in the area at the time because we know we left Africa long before that. I mean, is it possible that it was buried by Homo sapiens? Uh, I guess it it is possible, although um, this was... um... Maybe a lover. (laughs) I mean, they they were having sex, so... But, uh, but, you know, there were 10 Neanderthal specimens here. Um, so this really seems to be like a broadly Neanderthal site. And it's kind of, it, it would be quite typical of us to think, oh, it must be our species. It can't be those <laughs> Neanderthals who are looking after themselves. Because as, as Rowan mentioned, there's been a real sort of rethink about Neanderthals in recent years. And, and we're now starting to realise they're not the kind of unintelligent brutes we thought they were. I remember seeing uh, the handprint of a Neanderthal in a cave in, in southern Spain and it was really a really moving and incredible thing to see, like that connection with our ancestors going back, you know, tens yeah. of thousands of years. And Neanderthal art is really interesting. So there's a big debate at the moment. Um, a, a lot of it's really hard to actually show who made a cave painting, um, especially in the Iberian Peninsula. But we think around that time, um, or the time that these paintings were made, there weren't any modern humans there. Um, but all that comes down to the dating evidence. So just how old are those paintings? So there's quite a furious debate going on at the moment about whether those really were Neanderthals or not. But we do know that they had quite a sophisticated culture so there's evidence of them building quite technically difficult homes with hearths where they sat around and shared meals and they had um, like an ancient medicine cabinet of antiseptics and painkillers so it's really not the image that we used to have of the Neanderthals that's really changing now. There's a a really interesting site in northern Spain called the Pit of the Bones where lots and lots of skeletons human skeletons were discovered and there's some evidence they were deliberately buried or maybe funeral cached there which is not quite the same as burial but and they were recently discovered to be Neanderthals Mm. and it's 430,000 years old so maybe they've been burying their dead for hundreds of thousands of years longer than Homo sapiens. I wouldn't be surprised if if we were doing it for like at least 100,000 I don't see why Neanderthals wouldn't have been it's really interesting. Makes sense to bury it get it out of the way if nothing else, right? Well, and, and you look at some animals um, like elephants uh, who, you know, they really mourn their dead. Chimpanzees are really sad when mm. a close um, friend or relative dies. So it kind of makes sense that something as human as almost us would have their own things that they do uh, when that happens. And even naked mole rats bury their dead. Really? When a naked mole rat dies, they get dragged into a, what was a latrine uh, chamber in the in the burrow and then sealed off. Wow. Well, that's thought to be nothing cultural. It's just a hygiene ritual because they don't tend to go outside. Right. So they need to get rid of their dead. So it's just within good sense. Just good sense. <laughs> we are definitely coming back to naked mole rats in another episode of this show. Can be so. a future life form of the week. <laughs> For sure. That's our sci-fi alert. Rowan, what have you got for us this week? I'm going to flip it around this week and tell you the sci-fi reference before I tell you the news. If I say Star Trek... What do you think the story's going to be about, everyone? Teleportation. Nope. Uh, warp drive? Y- yes. <laughs> okay, so it is, well, it's it's not quite about warp drive, it's about antimatter. Um, and in the Star Trek world, uh, the starships are powered by antimatter engines. I thought they were powered by dilithium crystals. Oh, um, <laughs> so did I actually, but I looked it up and... Uh, yeah, just to get super nerdy, but uh, the dilithium crystals make a containment vessel for the antimatter. Uh, and it turns out that... That's not in real life, that's in Star Trek. Oh, yeah, that's in Star Trek. <laughs> so so the, 
point is that antimatter is a real thing, right? Um, I, I just can't stop getting excited by that, even though I've known for a long time it's a real thing and we can actually make it. Um, so every particle of, of real matter in our world has an antimatter partner that we call an antiparticle. Um, and we can make these. So an antiparticle version of the electron is called the positron and the antiparticle version of the proton is called an antiproton. And if you put them together, you get you get anti-hydrogen. So you normally get hydrogen. If you put the normal ones together, you get anti-hydrogen. So now at CERN, uh, near Geneva in Switzerland, that's where they discovered the Higgs boson, a group has managed to measure a property of antimatter. Uh, that's really difficult to do because... Uh, if antimatter gets in contact with matter, they annihilate each other. Um, and we have to study antimatter, or we really want to study it, because our best theory of the beginning of the universe is that matter and antimatter were created in equal quantities, which means they ought to have just annihilated, just boom, pew, b b bashed each other out. But they haven't, and, and, and that's the mystery. That's what we don't understand about the universe that we're in. Just to be clear, there isn't just antimatter floating out in the universe because if it met matter, it would just destroy it, right? Well, there is because bananas emit antimatter for some reason that really? I can't remember. <laughs> it's my favourite antimatter trivia fact is that bananas are a good source of antimatter as well, well as there potassium. Are, no, there are sources like the Van Allen belt apparently has very small amounts of antimatter in it and some people dream of there being sort of antimatter asteroids that you could go mine somehow um, because if you get hold of this stuff, it's incredibly valuable because it's very, very expensive to make. So it's the, I think it's the most expensive material in the universe that we know of, sort of pound per pound, how much it costs to make. So now we're getting close to, or, well, we are actually starting to study it and really begin understanding yeah. what antimatter is all about. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's very slow. It's very hard to deal with, obviously, because it just it, we don't have dilithium crystals to contain it, and it does, it, you know, it disappears, it annihilates itself. So one easy. tiny step towards the warp drive. Yeah, well, yeah, let's say that. <laughs> So next is not quite the warp drive, um, but there's been a really exciting announcement this week that SpaceX is to sell tickets into space for tourists. Rowan. Yeah, so this is all part of Elon Musk's mission to make the future happen faster. The space flight company he founded, SpaceX, is partnering with a space tourism firm called Space Adventures to sell tickets to the public. Uh, the flights are going to be on the Dragon capsule. Uh, this you might have heard of. It's gone to the ISS, the International Space Station, lots of times now. It's been fully flight tested um, and it's almost ready to go up with crew. SpaceX has been working with NASA ahead of this. Um, we expect the first launch with people on it to be soon this year. Uh, and then after that, in 2021 or perhaps 2022, there's going to be the first tourist flight. Uh, do we know what the destination for the flight is? Yep, yeah, it's it's kind of north of the ISS, north as in above. Sure. But it's going much higher than the ISS, so the people on board are going to be the, the highest altitude space tourists of, of all time. Wow. So this is going to set you back more than a budget airline ticket, I'm guessing? A bit more, yeah. It's going to be about, probably we think about $20 million. Um, space Adventures has done this before with um, the Soyuz, the Russian Soyuz spacecraft, sending people up to the ISS. Um, and they've spent, you know, tens to thirty-five million dollars per trip. So we, we, yeah, we think about twenty million. And so, is that just going to get you a trip straight up and down, or do you get to no, see you, the view? You know, you, well, yeah, you get a, you get a nice long weekend. You get, um, you know, four or five days up there. Uh, so you get a lot of time to hang out. Literally, <laughs> um, I don't know what the menus are yet, but um, I remember Heston Blumenthal. Um, designing some of the recipes for uh, that on the ISS so the food is going to be good you're going to get your money's worth but when you come back you know you'll be suffused with this wonder this glow and then you'll just not stop going on about it forever 
about how wonderful it all is up there. Become quite a bore at parties. Yeah. 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 So Elon Musk is the famous one and he founded SpaceX, but the company is run by a woman called Gwyn Shotwell. Um, and she said uh, about this mission, this historic mission will forge a path to making spaceflight possible for all people who dream of it. So that's great because I dream of it and I'd like to do it, but yeah, it's a bit expensive at the moment. Um, and even if you do go, you don't get to call yourself an astronaut. They only call you a space participant. Oh, that's harsh. Would you go if you uh, were offered a ticket? Honestly, I get travel anxiety with the most normal holidays. Um, but also, I'm trying not to fly, coming up on three years now for the sake of the environment. So this would be pretty hypocritical. It's probably a big footprint yeah. to go up there. How about you? Uh, I would totally go up there. Um, Elon, if you're listening, uh, please send me up. I, I would go at the, at the drop of a hat, although I'm a bit worried I'd get space sick. Is that is that a thing? I think it is a thing. Isn't that why people go train in the vomit comet to try oh, and yeah. learn how to yeah, control yeah. it? It is a thing. Um, another kind of interesting nugget going on at the moment with SpaceX is they've got a, a, a sort of proto-spaceport in South Texas in this village called Boca Chica. Um, and they've been quietly buying up the houses of this village, um, by, you know, buying people out so they can bo- build a spaceport to send people eventually to Mars. So this, I mean, it's really happening, all this stuff. Yeah, it really feels like a step towards that future we've been hearing about. Yeah, although, yeah, so some of the Boca Chica residents are not so happy about it. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Just a reminder that you can read all about these stories and many more at newscientist.com. If you'd like to subscribe, and we'd love you to subscribe, there is a special offer for podcast listeners only. Get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Yep, POD20 at checkout and get your discount. Uh, do get in touch with us on Twitter at NewScientistPod or email us at podcast at NewScientist.com and just check in with us. Let us know how you're feeling, what you like and what you want to hear more of. New episodes go live every Friday, so subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.